Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Neil Howard. Thank you so much for joining us for another segment of Health Professional Radio. In this segment, we're going to be speaking with Dr. Jonathan Wall. He's joining us here from Atralis to talk about the latest developments in systemic amyloidosis research. Welcome to Health Professional Radio, Dr. Jonathan Wall. Thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you very much. Great to be here. Well, tell us about your professional background and your current role at Atralis. So I'm a a distinguished professor at the University of Tennessee Graduate School of Medicine at Knoxville, and I'm a co-founder of Atralis and the interim uh, chief scientific officer and advisor on amyloidosis. And I've spent 27 years working in the field of systemic amyloidosis, designing therapeutics and imaging agents for this unmet uh, need for this disease. So what exactly is systemic amyloidosis? Yeah, it's a, it's a group of disorders that are characterized by the deposition of misfolded proteins that deposit outside the cells as protein fibrils, and they sequester proteins from the circulation and from the cells around which they deposit, and they form masses in these organs, masses of amyloid that cause uh, disruption and dysfunction and eventually organ failure. And there are about 20 different forms of systemic amyloidosis, some are hereditary, some are spontaneous, And there's a significant uh, clinical unmet need with respect to diagnosing these patients early. It's often difficult to diagnose early and accurately. And there's also an unmet need in in being able to remove these deposits and uh, recover organ function. Are the symptoms so subtle that uh, people delay treatment or diagnosis? Why is it so difficult to diagnose? And once that diagnosis is made, what are the next steps? So the diagnosis is difficult because um, the diseases are very heterogeneous in the way they present. So a lot of the symptoms look like other things that are far more common. And those are the things that get thought about first and evaluated first. And it's only when all everything comes back negative for those disorders that people then start to think about amyloid. It is a rare disorder, and that makes it difficult. It's not in the front of the mind of the physicians who, who see these patients early on. So it often takes two to three years for these patients to go through their diagnostic journey. They see multiple physicians and specialists and multiple tests. The diagnosis is generally made by a histological evaluation of tissue from a biopsy, often subcutaneous fat or something that was taken at a colonoscopy, and it's stained with a specific dye called Congo Red, and that dye can detect amyloid. And at that point, you get the first indication of amyloidosis. In some cases, there are some imaging um, abnormalities in echocardiography or in MRI analyses. And also there's a, there's a new test that's being applied called the pyrophosphate SPECT imaging system. And that allows physicians to detect amyloid in the heart of patients who have a specific form called transthyretin amyloidosis or ATTR. Once the diagnosis is made, depending on the form of amyloid that you have, then the treatment, para- the treatment paradigms sort of kick in and Most of these treatment paradigms right now are designed to inhibit further production of amyloid using various mechanisms. When should someone expect symptoms to to present? Um, Teens, uh, later in life, middle-aged? Again, it depends on the form of amyloidosis. Some are of late stage, so later in life, 60, 70 years of age. Some of the hereditary forms, you can see symptoms occurring early teens, sort of mid-20s. These disorders, um, the hereditary ones in particular, can present very early on and be very, very hard to treat. And in those patients, these are very rare forms of amyloidosis. In those patients, it's very difficult to uh, accurately, accurately detect unless you know 
that there's a genetic mutation that's causing the amyloidosis. And then a lot of these patients who have these rare forms, there's very little uh, therapeutic interventions that can be made. But in general, uh, the major forms of amyloidosis, ATTR and AL amyloidosis, occur later in life. Understanding that it's rare, is there a, a population that is disproportionately affected Again, there are some uh, uh, mutation carriers. So these are people who have a mutation in a protein that could form amyloid. It doesn't always form amyloid in these people, but it can. So they have a, a, a predilection or a, a prevalence towards getting amyloidosis. So <clears throat> these patients uh, can develop it. And so genetic mutations are important. I don't think there's any data out there that suggests that the environment or enough you know, dietary factors can, can impact the deposition of amyloid. A lot of the problem we've faced over the years is understanding who will get it and why they get it. And that's still something that a lot of people are still working on. With so many forms of this rare disease, are there many different treatments for it? In general, yes. But the underlying principles are basically the same. What do you want to do and the most successful historical treatments have been shutting off the precursor protein, so the protein that's about to form amyloid. And there are multiple ways to do that. In ATTR amyloidosis, there are genetic silencers that turn off the gene, essentially, and prevent the protein from being produced. Uh, there are also stabilizers for ATTR that actually hold the protein together and prevent it from forming amyloid deposits. In AL amyloidosis, which is light chain amyloidosis, the second most common form in the U.S., they attack the cell that makes the protein. So there's chemotherapy, immunotherapy, and protein degraders. So generally, the, the, the idea is that you turn off the tap and prevent the protein from being produced, and that prevents the amyloid from building up. But the problem is these patients, when they get diagnosed, they have deposits, sufficient deposits in their organs that have caused dysfunction. And what we're not doing right now, what a trialist is aiming to do, is remove those deposits Atralis is developing these disease-modifying reagents that can bind the amyloid in these organs and then get it cleared by the patient's immune system. And that's, the, again, the goal of, of what a lot of people are doing, and Atralis in particular. Now, I understand that being said that there was presentations at the International Symposium on amyloidosis. Uh, can you tell us about some of those uh, findings that were announced at ISA and give us some insight into your recently initiated clinical trial of a compound for this disorder. Yeah, so the International Society of Amyloidosis was held in Heidelberg in Germany this year, and uh, Atralis presented uh, quite a lot of data. Uh, excitingly, we had presentations on the ATO2 molecule. This is a, a, an antibody that's been functionalized with a small peptide that binds all forms of amyloid. It's a pan-amyloid removing pan-amyloid reactive reagent, so it works in all forms of amyloidosis. And the peptide directs this antibody to um, the amyloid in the tissues, and then that stimulates the immune system to remove the amyloid. And what we showed at, at the ISA was data that when amyloid has ATO2 attached to it, then the cells that can uptake, take up the amyloid macrophages are uh, enhanced. And so you get in, improved phagocytosis, uptake of the deposits by these cells, and that facilitates the removal. So we have two animal models that we presented, uh, one for AL amyloidosis and another for a, a very aggressive form of systemic amyloid called AA. And we showed in that model that uh, serial treatment with ATO2 was able to um, hinder the progression of disease, of disease in these animals. So the, the amount of amyloid that built up in these organs was significantly reduced. And that 
translated to an improvement or uh, a cessation of the organ dysfunction. So these organs functioned better because there was less amyloid in there. So we presented that data. There was also data on another um, pan-amyloid reactive molecule called ATO4, which is a smaller version of ATO2. And we're very excited about that because we think there's opportunities for it to penetrate the brain, the CNS, and work on amyloid diseases that are associated uh, with the brain, particularly Alzheimer's disease, because what this molecule can do is bind two types of fibrils that form in the, pa in the brains of patients with Alzheimer's disease. And uh, we hope that that will um, uh, prevent their buildup and also facilitate their removal and in, in AD patients, hopefully uh, ameliorate the disease there as well. What are the next steps for research? So, as you mentioned, there's a phase one trial ongoing right now of ATO2, and that's in healthy volunteers, and that was initiated a couple of years ago. It's a two-part study. Part one is a double-blinded, single-center, single-ascending dose in healthy volunteers. That's ongoing presently, and it's looking at safety and tolerability. And part two will be an opal-label study when we recruit uh, AL patients and TTR patients, patients with systemic amyloidosis, and we'll look at safety and tolerability uh, in those patients as well. With ATO4, we're excited because we're doing a lot of preclinical work on that CNS development and application for that small molecule and how effective that might be and how it would work in, in the brains of patients with Alzheimer's disease. And the trialis has also got an imaging agent and ATO1. We've been working on that and developing a, a novel variant of that uh, that might meet a uh, significant uh, clinical unmet need and allow um, uh, high throughput screening or screening of people who may have amyloidosis in a broader clinical setting. So there's lots going on in, in the research area. Well, give us a website, if you would, where our listeners can learn more. Yeah, so there's a lot more information on the Trialis website, and that's www.atrialis.com. And there's uh, information about all these reagents and how they work and, and information about background and where we're going with it. Jonathan, I appreciate your time this morning. Thank you so much for joining us here on Health Professional Radio. Thank you, sir. Appreciate the opportunity. You've been listening to Health Professional Radio. I'm your host, Neil Howard, in conversation with Dr. Jonathan Wall. Audio copies of this program are available at hpr.fm and Health Professional Radio. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, listen in, download at Anchor Spotify, and be sure and subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com, Health Professional Radio.